we want to welcome you this morning in an incredibly difficult and painful time in our nation. We are all experiencing so many emotions, and many of us are stuck trying to figure them out and make sense of them. As believers in God and as followers of Jesus, we are not promised answers when we want them necessarily. But what we are promised is this, that we can bring whatever we are carrying to a God (laughs) who knows all things and promises us peace where we have not, who loves all peoples and has created every one of us in the beauty of his image, and who meets those who seek his face. So let's bring ourselves before God and sing to him, resting in his care, singing, Be Still and Know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be Hey, Grace family, Uh, today as we draw our hearts and attention to the Lord in worship, we are all excruciatingly mindful of the state of our society, our country, and our world. And I imagine for most of us, having had to endure the trials that is and has accompanied COVID, has been more than enough to bear. But then to take in the tragic and horrific loss of life of George Floyd, and the deaths of Ahmed Aubrey and Breonna Taylor that kind of got lost amidst the COVID news. And then, of course, to, to witness the convulsive response to all this, including the riots and violence and destruction. A refrain that I keep hearing is it feels like our world is falling apart. Yes, it kind of does. And as we seek to lean into this thoughtfully, We find it's complicated. 
issues of race and racism, police brutality, injustice, the right kind of protest, the wrong kind of protest, sinful anger, righteous anger, virtue signaling and self-righteous posturing, rampant lawlessness, responding to evil with more evil, and the politicalization of it all, the unjustified generalizations, the rumors and threads of anarchist influences. It's all so much, too much. It's humbling, isn't it? I'm humbled. And to be honest with you, though I've never been afraid of crisis and controversy, I feel myself very ill-equipped to thoughtfully respond to some of these issues, especially issues of race. The context that I grew up in and have lived in as an adult did not naturally force me to contend much with these issues in any deep and, and personal way. And other than scratching the surface on issues of race from afar, my life has been largely insulated from them, which has raised a lot of questions for me personally and caused me to do a lot of soul searching. So how do we process all this? How should we respond? I've been asking those questions a lot lately, seeking the Lord in that. And there are a few things that keep coming to me. First of all, the person who has the mind of Christ should not be surprised by what we find in this fallen world. What we're witnessing may feel like new depths of evil and brokenness, but no, these problems have been with us all along. There is nothing new under the sun. We are just getting real-time glimpses and seeing graphic illustrations of the chaos of sin that has cursed our world practically from the beginning, with all its disordered rejection of God's loving lordship. And whatever outrage we may feel inclined to pour out on others, we should be ever mindful of our own sin that deeply marbles our life. Let's remember, Jesus Christ is the only decisive antidote for what this world needs. Whether it's the sin of racism, favoritism, partiality, brutality, greed, lust, whatever the sin, these cannot simply be eradicated with passion and a protest sign as appropriate as those may be at times. Because the only sin that we can successfully defeat is a forgiven sin. And thankfully, the God who conquered chaos by saying, let light shine out of the darkness, is able to shine in our dark, sinful hearts and offer forgiveness and bring healing, redemption, and new creation life to us and to this world. So in the midst of all this, it feels very appropriate to me to call us to humility and lament. A few weeks ago, I shared with you about the important role of faithful lament. And as I mentioned then, lament talks to God about our pain, our frustrations, our anger, our grief, our confusion, our fear. We pour it out to God, not just to dump it on Him, but to help us renew our confidence in God. Where is our confidence? Is it in the virtue of man? Is it in the state? Is it in our own strength and wisdom and righteousness? 
Is it in our wealth and comforts? Is it in our self-sufficiency? Let us repent. Let us weep over the state of this world. Let us weep over the state of our hearts. May we come to God brokenhearted and contrite, seeking His help, His healing, and the clarity that can only be found through Him. Let us lament together. Father, we bring to you our grief, our pain, our frustration, our anger, and confusion. We lay it all before you, knowing you can take it, you can bear it. And though the world we are witnessing seems so hopeless and dark, Lord, have mercy. May your light shine through this darkness, heal our land, heal our hearts, Impress upon us in profound ways the inherent value and dignity of every man and woman, especially those we see as different from us. Whether it be differences of race or social station or financial well-being or political sensibilities, as your people, may we be people who bring a spirit of peace and unity to this world to our neighborhoods, to our city. May we be people who do justly, who love mercy, and who walk humbly before you, Lord. May we love our enemies, blessing those who curse us, praying for those who may rise against us. May we be people of love. And may your grace flow down upon us, Drench us with your grace, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. There is so much going on. There's so much pain. There's so much uh, to feel right now that we wanted to play a song of ours. This song is about being broken and wanting to be whole. And just for a little bit of context, when we wrote this song, uh, it was written in a time when we had a really great need for personal healing. But when the words began to come out on the paper, um, they were much less personal. And the words have always proven to serve a bigger picture and a broader sentiment. And so we're going to sing it for you now. It's called Make Me Whole in support of that truth. See that I am holding, holding on. 
So as we open up God's word together today, we'll be looking at Jesus's greatest commandment in the story of the Good Samaritan, which is in Luke 10, 25 through 37. So here's Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. So today marks a big transition for us. We've spent the last five months talking about the Holy Spirit, who he is and what it means to live as spirit-filled people. And we as elders have been thinking and praying about what comes next. What do we do this summer in light of all that's going on? And what we want to do is move to a conversation about what does it mean to be the church? What is the church? How do we engage one another as the church? And we've had to see the church take different forms. We're moving towards home gatherings in the summer. We're having to figure out how to connect and relate with each other in this ever-changing environment. And so we want to think through what does it mean to truly be the church? And the way we're going to do that is by looking at the one another's of scripture. And what I mean by that is there's lots of places in the New Testament where the authors will call us to engage one another in certain ways. Offer hospitality to one another. Serve one another in love. Consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So each week we'll look at one of the one another's. But before we do that, we want to just start this in light of all that's going on in our world today and ask the question, what does it mean to be the church in the world? Not just with one another, but in the world in a moment like this. What does it mean to be Jesus followers in this world that we're living in today? And so to do that, we're looking at one of the most familiar parables of Jesus of all, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I know it's very familiar, but my hope is that it will be given new meaning for you today, or at least new weight as we set it down into the context in which we find ourselves. So beginning in verse 25, an expert in the law addresses Jesus on this conversation of how do you inherit eternal life? And the conversation quickly moves to the greatest command of all, 
the commandment to love. First, love God with all that you've got. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. And the, the conversation then hinges around this question from the expert in the law, who is my neighbor? Meaning, how should we define neighbor? What kind of boundary can we put around neighbor? What kind of fence can we put so we know who we're talking about when we use that term neighbor? And to that question, who is my neighbor, Jesus offers one of his most famous parables. Uh, it is also his most racially charged parable of all in the Bible. It is the story, as I mentioned, of the Good Samaritan. And, you know, 2,000 years of familiarity, uh, we hear Good Samaritan today and we think of, you know, the, the kid who helps the, the cat out of the tree or the person who helps the old lady walk across the street. That's a Good Samaritan, right? But in the first century, uh, in the Jewish context, that word Samaritan would raise all the tension and, and prejudice and, and even anger that, that we're experiencing in our world today. Between Jews and Samaritans, there was racial tension. So Jews certainly would have considered themselves pure uh, racially, and Samaritans were part Jewish and part Gentile. And there was, I won't go into the details of this, but there was this long and dark history between the Jews and the Samaritans in the land of Israel. So like Luke gives us a little window into the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, just the chapter four in Luke nine, where Jesus is moving uh, from the north down to Jerusalem and he, he's wanting to pass through a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans actually come out to the village and say, hey, you, you, know, you can't step foot in our village. You're, you're a Jew going to Jerusalem. You, you're not welcome here. You can't come here. They won't even let him in the village. And James and John respond by asking Jesus, hey, should we, should we like, call down fire from heaven and to destroy them right now. So <laughs> that gives you just a little sense of the, of the deep tension and animosity that existed between these two people groups. So it's into that cultural context that Jesus tells his story. And the story begins uh, with this great act of injustice, right? This, this act of, of violence and violation of a human being. This Jewish man is heading from Jerusalem uh, down to Jericho, and he's attacked, and he's beaten, and he's robbed, and he's left for dead on the side of the road. So the story begins with this deep, uh, violent violation of a, of a human being's rights. And then along come these two Jewish men, first a priest and then a Levite. And for Jesus' listeners, these guys would represent the best of Israel, at least from a certain point of view. So, I mean, like being from the tribe of Levi, that's like the most ethnically pure kind of Jew you can be. These guys would have been considered moral and principled and religious and respectable. I mean, if they were insiders in the Jewish community, these guys were insiders. But as they pass by this other Jewish man who is suffering, uh, apparently they, they find these ways to put a fence around this conversation of neighbor, to put a boundaries around this man so that they don't feel like they need to help him and to love him. And there's lots of reasons they might do that. I mean, there's a significant danger to, to stop on this road where a guy's just been robbed to try to help him. That's a really dangerous thing to do. Um, there's this massive need represented by this man who's on the side of the road. I mean, who knows 
how much need there is there and what that's going to take for these guys. It's going to completely upend whatever schedule, whatever plans they had. And to meet that need is going to be significant. Uh, for these guys, it may have rendered them ceremonially impure. I mean, these are priests and here's a bloodied body, which they probably shouldn't touch. All these reasons, but the point is they find a way to say, this guy doesn't fit in the category of neighbor, right? I don't know him. I have no personal relationship with him. I have no real personal responsibility to him. And so they walk to the other side of the road and they pass by. And so whatever else is clear, what is clear is as they walk by, love is not driving them. Whatever else is driving them, it is not love. Their hearts are closed to this man. There's a fence around their hearts, we could say, as they pass by this man in need. And let me just, you know, just to speak personally, as I've just been sitting with myself uh, recently, I am so convicted uh, by these two men. I, I feel represented by these two men in my life in so many ways. And the older I get, uh, I'm 44 now, the more I, I look at my own heart and the way I live my life. And I guess the best way to say it is I just, I'm confronted by the smallness of my own heart, how easily my heart closes itself off to other needs or other situations around me. And I mean, just to put it simply, I'm realizing, and I'm kind of coming to terms with this, I just don't care that much if it doesn't impact me personally. My heart is small. My heart does not beat with this wide, expansive heart of Jesus that he invites us into. And there's just fences around my heart. It's just how I have lived my life. And I would imagine for some of us, we can relate to these guys. And, and it's interesting in this moment, like I'm thinking especially with all that's been happening with COVID and the, the shutdown and, and how our lives have been changed. Um, I'm just observing our reactions, my reactions, and, and, and the, the sense of anger that um, can well up in our hearts, the sense of injustice, the sense of passion as we feel like our, our rights are being violated. And for most of us, we don't have that much experience of that. I certainly don't. And so there's this sort of feeling of righteous anger and passion that our rights are being violated. And so I've been confronted with like, how often have I felt that sense of righteous anger when other people's rights are being violated, whatever those rights might be in the world, whatever needs there are, how often is what I'm feeling now ever exercised on behalf of somebody else? And I'm just kind of realizing, man, we, we care when it affects us or maybe we, when it affects people that we're really close to. And that's just kind of like part of the human heart, I think, certainly my heart. That's part of almost what it means to be human. And yet, I think Jesus in this parable is inviting us into a new way of being human, a new kind of heart with which to engage the world around us. So enter a Samaritan, this long-standing enemy of Jews. And he walks by this Jewish man on the side of the road, and he has every reason to put a fence around this guy and every reason to justify why he should not help. He has the same reasons as the priest and the Levite, right? There's, this is a dangerous situation. This represents incredible need that's going to completely throw off whatever he had planned for the day. And on top of that, he has all the prejudice against this man and the knowledge that there's no way if the roles were reversed, this man would help him. 
He has all those reasons. And yet as he approaches, something else happens in his heart. And this is really the turning point of the story, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, here it is, he had compassion on him. And that word compassion in the Greek literally refers to the guts. It's kind of like saying his guts were moved for this man. We would say his, his heart went out to this man. It's the exact opposite response where the priest and the Levite, their hearts were closed off. His heart goes out to this man with a sense of pity and compassion and mercy. And that compassion then moves him to the greatest commandment of all, to love, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so whatever fences he might put around this guy, he doesn't. And he just chooses to love in a radical way. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds. Uh, He put him on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. The next day, he took out money and gave it to the innkeeper and said, look after him. I'll reimburse you with whatever you need. In, In a word, he loves. He fulfills the greatest commandment at great risk to himself. Risk for his safety, for his convenience, risk of his reputation with his other Samaritan friends who would not you know, like what he's doing here, the cost of his finances. No fences. He breaks through and has this compassion that moves him towards loving action. And he, the Samaritan, is Jesus' answer to who is my, na- who is my neighbor. Answer, who's your neighbor? Anyone? Everyone? <laughs> Even your enemy, as Jesus will say elsewhere, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And so it is such a radical story. And just speaking personally, it is such a convicting story to me. It's like this spiritual gut punch that confronts me with the smallness of my heart and a heart that cares about things that only impact me and not those that impact other people. And it's a very convicting passage. A passage, and, I, and maybe you feel that conviction this morning as well. But um, that being said, here's what's so great about this story. Uh, and I've talked about this story before, so this may be familiar to you. But um, I don't think Jesus intends to leave us just with a spiritual gut punch, like this deep conviction, like you're not doing it right. Um, that's not where he wants to leave us. And the brilliance of the story is how he tells this story. And what he does is he switches the roles in the story from what you would expect, okay? And you have to remember, he has an entirely Jewish audience that he's speaking to. So if I were telling this story and I was trying to be radical and people are asking me like, you know, who's my neighbor? I would probably tell a story of a Jewish man who's walking down a road and sees a Samaritan left for dead. And yet that Jewish man chooses to help a Samaritan And the point of my story would be that we should help even our worst enemies. And you would be left with this kind of moralistic lesson like, yeah, we should go out and, and, and help even our worst enemies. But that is not the story that Jesus tells. Jesus reverses the roles, and that's the brilliance of the story. Jesus puts the Jewish man in the ditch beaten and left for dead, and the Samaritan as the helper. Now, who is his audience going to identify with? No one in the audience is going to identify with the Samaritan. They're all going to identify with the Jewish guy left for dead. And so Jesus' story is so disarming in that it puts us 
in the place of need. It puts me in the place of need and leaves me asking the question, what if I was beaten? What if I was left for dead on the side of the road in the most dangerous place possible? And what if my worst enemy came along and saw me there? And what if that, that person who makes my blood boil, okay, my worst enemy, what if that person is the only hope I have to life, to health? And what if this person who I would least expect to do this demonstrated this radical compassion and sacrificial action and utterly surprising activity on my behalf to, to save me and to restore me? How would that action redefine their category as neighbor in my mind. You see the difference? So my story is a moralistic story of duty and, and breaking through boundaries. Jesus' story is a story of grace. It's a story of grace from the person you last and least expect to receive it from. It is disarming. It is this reminder of the grace that we need. And here's the most beautiful part of this story, this theoretical story of receiving grace when we least expect it, is actually our story. That is the story of what Jesus has done for each one of us. Let me just read to you um, parts of Romans 5. This is parts of verse 6 through 10. Uh, this is Paul speaking. He says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. This is the gospel, Paul speaking here. We were powerless. We were sinners. We were enemies. Spiritually speaking, we were like that man on the side of the road left for dead. There were so many fences between us and God, between this holy and perfect God and us imperfect and independent and rebellious sinners. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus is our good Samaritan who comes walking along and he sees us at the time his enemies, but he sees our needs and his heart is filled with compassion. His heart goes out to us. And whatever fences he might put up, he breaks those down and he loves us radically at this incredible cost to himself. He identifies with us. He identifies with our sin. He serves us. He ultimately offers his life for us. And he takes us from being his enemies and turns us into being his friends and even his family. That is our story. And so... When we see Jesus as our good Samaritan, as our radical neighbor, that is the thing that can begin to transform our hearts. It's not a moralistic call to go out and, and be awesome. It is an encounter with grace, with a surprising grace that you know you don't ex deserve and maybe didn't even expect. That is that grace. That's the thing that has the power to change the human heart. And I want to invite us into that grace in this time to receive it again and then to go, what does that mean, the fact that I've received that grace? What does that, what does that mean as I look out into this world right now in all of its brokenness and so many forms of brokenness? What does compassion and love look like?
we are living in a moment where there are no simple answers, right? These, these issues are incredibly complex. But what is simple, and not easy, but what is simple is the posture of our hearts that Christ calls us into. It is this grace-filled, compassionate, and loving response that moves into courageous action in this world, moves towards loving those uh, without boundaries. And so each one of us has to figure out, Lord, what does that mean for me to have your heart in this moment? Again, the answers are complex, but that much is clear. So let us move by the grace of God in these times. Let us be moved to offer that same compassion and grace to those around us. Worship 
that you've been encouraged this morning and we would invite you to consider the reflection questions that we'll put up on the screen. And let me end this time together by reading you this benediction. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Amen. Amen.